Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav Badesha, and this is episode three with Dr. Eben Alexander. In today's episode, we'll be sitting down with a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon. He's performed over 4,000 neurosurgical procedures in his career and has dealt with hundreds of patients who suffer from severe alterations in their level of consciousness, many of them being rendered comatose by trauma, brain tumors, ruptured aneurysms, infections, or stroke. After treating these patients, he thought he had an advanced understanding on how the brain generated consciousness, mind, and spirit. That was until he suffered from a rare bacterial meningitis that put him into coma. During that time, he spent a week on a ventilator where a machine was breathing for him. And even though his brain was shut off, he said he experienced an expansion of consciousness that extended beyond his body and brain, which proved to him that the presence of God is real. This near-death experience, or NDE for short, changed his entire perspective on the fundamental nature of reality. His experience revealed that we are conscious in spite of our brain, that in fact, consciousness is at the root of all existence. I'm so excited to share the story with you guys and to learn more about how Dr. Alexander's story impacts you and your views. Let me know what you think. Send me a message on our Instagram story. You can tag Medspiration, that's M-E-D, Spiration, in your stories while also tagging your friends. Let us know you're out there and that you're listening. And a big thank you to our sponsor today, Caribbean Medical University. Are you interested in becoming a practicing medical doctor in the United States? CMU is a fully accredited medical school that offers you an incredible opportunity to study abroad in one of the most beautiful Caribbean islands and then transition to the United States for your hospital training. I personally know some great resident physicians here in the Chicago area who went to CMU and loved the experience. Caribbean Medical University has partnered with Medspiration to bring you a once in a lifetime discount. You can visit cmumed.org forward slash Medspiration and enter the discount code MDSPR to have your entire application fee waived. That's a $75 value. Apply today and see if medicine is in your future. And without further ado, let's get straight into it. I got, I got, I got, I got. The what? Did you say the universe works mentally? Yes, it's a mental universe. In fact, this is something very comfortable for quantum physics. I know the universe works mentally. I would say we're all here in the process of healing. That is becoming more of who we came to this world to be. I believe the whole universe exists to support the free will decisions of sentient beings. The universe and the heavens work in my DNA. Well, that's why I see music and vibration and frequency is so important. To live these lives, feel the pain of loss of love, but also feel the glories of love and of embodiment of kind of that divine essence of this universe and our ability to participate in it. Well, well, my friends, I can tell you this. I know that so many of you are resonating with Dr. Evan Alexander's story, Proof of Heaven, because this book is number one on all the bestseller lists throughout our country. I just talked to the man who saw God, and he talks about how that experience of heaven has now changed the way he lives here on Earth, 
and how it can change the way we all live. What you're about to see may change everything you thought you knew about life and death. It did for one neurosurgeon who called himself a skeptic. That was until his near-death experience made him believe in an afterlife. Now he says he can prove heaven exists. Meet the doctor who's being called a medical miracle, Eben Alexander. Dr. Eben Alexander, welcome to the Medspiration Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to be having a conversation with a man who spent 25 years of his life as an academic neurosurgeon, including 15 years at Harvard Medical School. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. He's written some of the most thought-provoking books I've ever came across, which include Proof of Heaven, which spent 38 weeks on the New York Times bestselling list. He also wrote The Map of Heaven and his newest and latest work, Living in a Mindful Universe, which was co-authored with Karen Newell. Dr. Eben, my intention today is to share your story with our audience and to delve deeper into the concepts of consciousness, spirituality, life after death, meditation, psychedelics, and the latest in neuroscience and quantum mechanics. So it's safe to say that the nerd inside me is jumping for joy right now. Uh, so without further ado, please introduce yourself. And if you don't mind, uh, take us through your near-death experience you experienced back in 2008. Okay, Nav. Well, thanks again for having me on today. It's a real joy to be uh, talking with you and have this opportunity to share with your audience. Briefly, I think it's important to point out it was about 10 years ago that I had my coma experience. And uh, in fact, November 16th of 2008 was the day I came out of coma. I kind of consider that my rebirth day in a sense. But I think the important thing about my journey, uh, the important thing to understand is that I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm very interested in the brain and consciousness. And that's why having the experience I had back in November 2008 was so mind-boggling. It completely defied everything I thought I knew about the nature of the brain and mind and their relationship and the origins of consciousness. Um, and, and yet that's why it was such a gift, because it was such a perfect uh, rebuttal of all of that thinking that I'd spent 54 years of my life trying to develop. Uh, you know, I, I bought into the modern conventional scientific model that basically known as physicalism or scientific reductive materialism, uh, which basically says the material world is the only thing that exists. So if we're trying to relate brain, mind, and consciousness, obviously the physical brain must somehow be producing the consciousness. And that, of course, is where we run into tremendous errors with assumptions that have been made uh, over the last few centuries that are just flat out incorrect. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why uh, quantum physics is so crucial, because it is showing us a pathway out of here. But for me, going into that experience, fully believing the brain creates consciousness and that it uses the most powerful calculator in the human brain, which is the neocortex, the outer surface, to generate all the details of conscious awareness, that is false. And, and my journey showed me that very clearly. And then uh, I came to realize that there are many other lines of evidence uh, that point to this. And in fact, the entire modern scientific world in pursuing mind-brain connection and nature of consciousness is going along the very same pathway that I outline in Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and especially in Living in a Mindful Universe. And very briefly, the, the journey I had in coma, which should not have been able to happen, according to modern neuroscience, given mm -hmm. the documented damage to my brain, and the medical details of my case are available to anyone and everyone 
there was a medical case report, a review of my medical records. It just came out in September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. Anybody can access that medical report for free if you go to my website, ebonalexander.com, and go to blogs. And uh, two blogs ago, I wrote a blog that was basically about the facts uh, that validated my experience. And there's a link at the top of that that goes right to the medical records. The bottom line is I experienced three very profound kind of levels of engagement that I would cycle through repeatedly. Uh, it all started with the earthworm eye view, a very primitive course on the responsive realm. And important for your listeners to understand, if they haven't read Proof of Heaven, is that I was amnesic. It's an, a very unusual feature for an NDE, even though my NDE has so many classic features. But the amnesia was an unusual one. It took me months and even years to figure out why that amnesia was so important. But I had to discover a lot of things on my own without any kind of prejudices. And that's why that meningitis was so important. That's why deleting my memory, at least uh, you know temporarily, uh, and proving in the process that memories are not stored in the physical brain at all, which is something that we discuss in detail in Living in Mindful Universe. Uh, but in that journey, I started out in that earthworm eye view realm, very primitive course, unresponsive. Initially, I thought that was the best consciousness my brain could muster while my neocortex was being uh, attacked by gram-negative bacteria. And then what happened was I was ushered up through a portal of light, this pure spinning white light that came packaged as a perfect musical melody. And it served as basically a portal up into the rich, ultra-real gateway valley that was far more real than this world. That's the part that's so hard to explain to people, is that there are consensus realms of reality that are not the material world that we do share, which you can certainly hear described through near-death experiences, through mystic journeys, prophets, seekers over thousands of years have reported similar journeys to a similar landscape. And that's the thing that shocked me when I came back, because I'd never read the NDE literature before. But as I started reading that literature and the mystical literature, I realized that we're all talking about a very similar, very real set of realms, spiritual realms. And I visited them beginning in that NDE with that uh, beautiful gateway valley that had many Earth-like features. Uh, there was lots of lush plant life, butterflies. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There were thousands of souls between lives dancing below us. Uh, and yes, animals are there too. I remember seeing dogs uh, and children playing and dogs jumping. So it's a, a very uh, vibrant, alive uh, world. And in that world, I had that beautiful guardian angel. She's a crucial player because as people who've read Proof of Heaven realized, four months after my coma, discovering the identity of that beautiful guardian angel, who was a tremendous mystery to me, because I, I knew her so well from the experience, and yet I knew she was supposed to be important to me from life, and yet I had no idea who she was. But I met her in that gateway valley, uh, and yet that was only a stepping stone to much higher levels. It turns out that music, vibration, frequency provide the channels or the portals of traversal through those spiritual realms, and we can access them through what we remember as musical notes or tones or melodies. And that's why it's interesting that sacred acoustics has become so important to me in the work I do now, meditating an hour or two a day using differential frequency brain entrainment from sacred acoustics. Very powerful technique for uh, getting at consciousness at a primitive level. Now, it turns out that, uh, again, on that coma journey, uh, those angelic choirs provided portals to higher and higher levels, all the way out to what I call the core. Uh, the core was as far as I went on my journey, 
I can't imagine anything further. Basically, the entire higher dimensional multiverse throughout all of eternity was shrunken down uh, as this kind of complex oversphere that was used to demonstrate lessons and help to teach in those realms. Uh, but in that world, know that the entire higher dimensional multiverse throughout all of eternity was compact as a tiny little ball for demonstration purposes. So I hope you can imagine these words obviously don't do justice to what I experienced. Coming into touch with pure consciousness as we do on these journeys without having the brain and sensory systems to provide a kind of a filtering, reducing uh, veil function, uh, full-blown, uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose, that kind of spiritual experience and direct uh, primordial consciousness experience. Now, in that core realm, I was told I was not there to stay, uh, that I would be coming back. And then, of course, I just seemed to tumble back down into that earthworm eye view. And by remembering the musical notes of the melody, I could conjure up those portals of light that would traverse into higher and higher levels. And uh, that's why I see music and vibration and frequency is so important. But there finally came a time where they weren't kidding. I wasn't there to stay, and I could no longer conjure up that beautiful portal to lead me out of the out of the earthworm's eye view. But at that point, I knew I could trust in the universe, that I would be taken care of. And that's when I saw six faces coming up out of the muck and then disappearing. And those faces were important to me in timing the entire adventure because they were faces of people who were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours of coma. And of note, there were other family and friends who were present earlier who were not in my memories at all. And that's why their appearance at that time helped me to know that the coma experience had to happen between days one and five. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's so important is because my doctors had full documentation of my Glasgow coma scale and knowledge that all eight lobes of my brain were affected. So no part of the neocortex was left unspared. And that was an important part in terms of interpreting all of this. As much as many people, including some scientists and doctors, are tempted to call this all hallucination, dream, drug effect, without a neocortex, you can't do those things. You can't manufacture a hallucination or a dream or a drug effect. In fact, any kind of elaborate conscious experience should not happen, according to modern neuroscience. To me, it was a giant shock that as my neocortex was taken offline, my conscious awareness actually became far greater than mm. anything I could ever recall experiencing before. And when I read the similar accounts from many other near-death experiencers, that's when I realized, uh, and especially seeing the commonalities of the journeys and descriptions, no matter what someone's prior beliefs, that's what drove me to a much uh, deeper uh, kind of mission to understand what had happened to me and what these experiences truly mean. So what did this do for your faith? Like, did you believe in God before your NDE? Well, you know, my it turns out my father was very influential in my life. He was an academic neurosurgeon, a very acknowledged uh, and widely respected scientist. He was a world leader in neurosurgical techniques and development in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, he was a real uh, leader, and yet he had a profound belief in God, which he had... Uh, developed as a young child growing up in eastern Tennessee. His own father was a general surgeon who took him to a Presbyterian church every Sunday. So my dad had a, a great faith in God that was based in a belief in the reality of prayer. He used it in his neurosurgery. I, on the other hand, grew up in the 60s and 70s. And I always knew that science is the pathway to truth, but I was, as many people, misled by scientific materialism 
into thinking it was a pathway to truth. Whereas scientific materialism was actually disproven 80 years ago, you know, with the advent of quantum physics, and yet it's taken us so long to get what quantum physics is truly trying to tell us. But essentially it's telling us that consciousness is primordial in the universe and creates everything else that happens. And it's a really a pretty simple and clear message from quantum physics. That's so fascinating right there, because when we're talking about materialist science, are you talking about our ability to create a reality through only those five senses? Well, I'm basically saying that in conventional uh, scientific thinking that I harbored before my coma, we honor a position known as physicalism. That's its most its strictest terminology. And that is that the physical stuff out there is the only thing that exists. And in fact, that science tries to pretend that there is no such thing as consciousness. In its extreme form, say, uh, Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher at Tufts in Boston, says none of us are conscious. We're all zombies. Because he believes, as do many scientists, that if the physical world is all that exists, then you somehow have to explain consciousness as the epiphenomenon or kind of confusing result of all the chemical reactions and electron fluxes of the physical material that makes up the brain. You know, three and a half pounds of gelatinous material. It's very complex, but the thing is, it's not actually creating consciousness. And that's where we really lose sight of reality. It's only serving as a filter that allows expression of consciousness. But it really is more of a prison than anything. And that's why when we die, we're actually liberated from that prison. But you don't have to wait till you die to know that truth. You can develop it, cultivate it through a regular practice, I recommend daily, of meditation, of going within, exploring consciousness, coming to realize the little voice in, in my head is not Eben Alexander. It is not who I am. Uh, that little voice in the head is Michael Singer in his book, The Untethered Soul. He calls the voice in the head an annoying roommate. That's yeah. a very good way to look at it. Don't give that little voice in your head, the voice of your ego, any more credence that, than that it's an annoying roommate that's trying to lead you away from some deeper truth and understanding. And that's why meditation, going within, uh, developing a relationship with primordial mind and that higher soul that is not slave to all the insanity of the ego and the linguistic brain and the voice in the head, but actually has far greater wisdom that the universe can offer, that is where the, the magic is. And people who meditate, just like uh, in Tibetan dream work, you can come to know long before when you leave the physical world that you are an eternal spiritual being that is connected with all the creative force in the universe and that we, we live in this illusion of believing that we're isolated in these bodies as an individual self. But the near-death experience shows very clearly that that part itself is a myth. The life review, which has been described for more than 2,400 years, you know, your life flashing before your eyes, is described by many near-death experiencers as being from the perspective of those who were affected by our actions and thoughts. So the life review is not experienced by us. It's experienced by those who were influenced by our actions and thoughts. That's why the life review works as such a beautiful corrective mechanism to help lead us back onto uh, a pathway of the golden rule of treating others as we would like to be treated. Because essentially that's what the life review and NDEs are telling us is we, we own our choices. We're responsible for our decisions. If we hurt other people, we're going to have to feel that pain ourselves. If we, if we don't make amends in our lifetime, we have to feel it in our life review when we reunite with higher souls and, and loved ones. So, just a tremendous amount of revelation that comes from this shift in perspective.
I, I couldn't agree more. I've been meditating consistently for four years now. And one thing you mentioned, it reminds me of Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. When you talk about ego, you know, Eckhart Tolle mentions that tormentor that lives inside of our head. And the ability to watch the thinker. This is something that's helped me in my meditation is where I'm able to take a look at my ego that's telling me certain things and it's usually negative things, right? And my ability to watch that, it can allow me to actually have control over that and to shift my thoughts to something that's more abundant, something that's more loving. And ever since I've put that into practice, I've opened up a different level of consciousness for myself. So I do want to talk more about ego and kind of what ego does when we talk about addiction, self-sabotage. Like what, what can you tell us about ego? Well, I think the ego is a very interesting uh, kind of construct. Uh, it, it's fascinating. The, the thing is, don't take it too seriously. As I mentioned in Proof of Heaven, I had my own kind of struggles and challenges with alcohol. I stopped drinking in 1991, you know, uh, right after I started my neurosurgical practice. I just realized it wasn't really consistent with uh, being able to deliver the kind of, of care I wanted to deliver. And uh, I stopped drinking in 91. It turns out that that was a, was a beautiful gift in so many ways. And I think the ego, one thing we come to realize when any kind of study of alcoholism or any type of addiction, and I'm not just talking about substance addiction. Uh, I'm talking also about addiction to sex or addiction to love, addiction to work, addiction to working out. Uh, you know, there are addictions to many things that can kind of wreck our lives, but they usually wrap around the ego and some kind of demand it is making, some statement it makes about self and kind of unworthiness and what have you uh, that drives us more and more to try and do things to satisfy the ego. And I, I know a lot of people involved in addiction uh, medicine actually uh, will go through what's called a psychodrama with their patients uh, with, uh, in therapy. They will uh, have a ritual sacrifice of the ego uh, mm. because what they know and what's very clear from addiction and alcoholism work is the ego would much rather see the host dead than to than see itself. the ego dead. And, and it's really kind of shocking. Mm. So better to get rid of the ego and allow the host to survive and thrive and do well free of the of the egoic kind of insanity. But the, the key is to develop that relationship with higher soul. And again, meditation is a beautiful way to do that by acknowledging that little voice in our head, the voice of the ego and a kind of rational, logical thought for what it is, but be able to put it into time out and allow the universe to give us much greater wisdom. And so much of what I've discovered and what so many others have discovered really comes from opening up and trusting the universe to do just that. And these, this has tremendous practical value too. For example, when you look at the creative process and people like uh, Albert Einstein, who would float around for hours in a sailboat staring at the sky just daydreaming, uh, or Thomas Edison, who would hold some weights up and when he fell asleep, they would drop down, wake him up, and he'd have three or four of those micronaps in a row. And then, wow, he was off and running in that hypnagogic space to help him with his inventions. Robert Louis Stevenson used similar technique to develop the themes of his novels and, and uh, stories and music and poetry. Um, Salvador Dali, Beethoven, the list goes on. These were all creative artists, inventors, scientists, philosophers who knew they didn't think their way to big answers. They actually opened their mind to the universe to let the universe offer them greater wisdom. And that's what all of us can do through a process of meditation. Whatever you do in your life, bringing in creativity, 
greater health, uh, improving your immune system, uh, getting in touch with the uh, souls of departed loved ones. Whatever you're wanting to do, deep meditation, exploring consciousness can show you ways to do it. You know, that leads us into the filter theory. Can you explain the filter theory and what that means for the mind? Yeah, the general idea, and this is kind of the idea in modern neuroscience and philosophy of mind that is taking over, given that the production model, that is, the brain produces consciousness, is basically false. Nobody's ever been able to show any way that that worked. Even though it's a broad assumption, uh, it's not the way reality works. Uh, in reality, consciousness is creating all of this. So, and that's where filter theory comes in handy. Now, filter theory is not some new concept. Mm -hmm. Filter theory was actually uh, developed uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, especially uh, by William James, the renowned global uh, leader in psychology at Harvard, uh, by F.C.S. Schiller, by uh, Henri Bergson in France, uh, a little bit later, uh, Aldous Huxley in the United States. All of them wrote about the mind as, as a uh, a reducing valve or filter. Uh, interesting, the choice of the word reducing valve, because people over the last few centuries tend to look at the brain and mind and consciousness with whatever modern uh, technical leading uh, analogy you have. So the reducing valve actually came from the era of steam engines, mm -hmm. uh, when they, they kind of looked at the brain as functioning like a steam engine, and somehow that's how it generated consciousness. So they were really looking at it as a reducing valve that stopped down uh, and limited consciousness to this tiny little trickle of an apparent here and now. And I think that's where filter theory is very important. And we discuss in great detail in Living in a Mindful Universe, the book that I uh, co-wrote with uh, Karen Newell, we discuss how filter theory is very important in these modern uh, models. In fact, in chapter five of that book, we have what's called the primordial mind hypothesis, where we basically point out the whole system, the metaphysical system that would allow this to work, which involves filter theory. It involves an appropriate interpretation of the measurement paradox and things like contextuality and quantum physics, uh, and basically paints this universe as one that's entirely mental, uh, in which the physical is projected from the mental. And that is the way it works. It makes so much more sense. Did you just say the universe works mentally? The what? Did you say the universe works mentally? Yes, it's a mental universe. In fact, this is something very comfortable for quantum physics. I would steer you to an essay, a one-page essay written in Nature, mm -hmm. that beautiful scientific journal Nature, in 2005 by Richard Kahn Henry. Mm -hmm. He was the head of astrophysics at Johns Hopkins University, so no slouch when it comes to modern knowledge of cosmology and physics and quantum physics. And he wrote a simple one-page essay called Mental Universe, and he spells it out so clearly there. Um, I would say the other kind of missing pieces, we connect all the dots there in Living in a Mindful Universe to bring all this together. Uh, but for those who want other objective pathways, I would uh, point to the work of Bernardo Kastrup and some of his wonderful uh, books, and go to bernardocastrup.com to find out more about his work. But he's written several essays that have recently been published in Scientific American blog that have to do with idealism, metaphysical idealism, ontological idealism. That is, this idea of the mental universe is fundamental. Uh, and uh, Bernardo endorses our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. He's been a great supporter and friend, and I thoroughly love his work. He's, uh, he works at CERN. He has a deep uh, knowledge of quantum physics and an understanding of it. 
And in these essays he's recently written in Scientific American, he's gone a long way towards painting the picture that we paint in Living in a Mindful Universe. That the, the most realistic way to look at all of this and to make sense of it is uh, starting from a philosophical position of idealism, of this mental universe. I read something in The Law of Attraction. It talks about our mind constantly has many thoughts that are coming to it. And like a radio station, when you're tuning into a certain frequency and you're listening to that radio station, uh, it says we actually have control over what frequency we want to choose. So is the filter theory kind of along those lines where it's like if I choose to filter my thought process from an idea of abundance, an idea of love, now I'm able to attune my frequency to that. Now I'm able to act on that. I'm able to receive from that. Is that yeah. kind of what the filter theory is well, postulating? It has to do with resonance. It has to do with constructive interference of information. It has to do with the fact that the only thing that exists at the most fundamental level of the universe is, um, I hesitate to use the word information because it's more than that. It's the perceptual awareness and integration of information. That's the most fundamental level uh, of existence in the universe. And that is the realm of the mental universe. That is the realm of consciousness. But what happens is that mental universe is what generates the actual pathway of flow for a given soul on, a, on the journey of discovery, of learning about the relationship of, of soul and universe, because we all have this powerful one-to-one -one relationship with the creative force of the entire universe, and yet we don't treat ourselves that way. Uh, so much of this has to do with our beliefs and opening up our minds to incredible beliefs. You know, mind has tremendous power over matter, which is completely opposite of what that conventional scientific wisdom that I had worshipped before my coma would try and tell me about physicalism. Uh, and the most perfect example, and we discuss this in detail in Living in a Mindful Universe, of mind over matter fully accepted in the modern scientific world is placebo effect. Oh, placebo wow. effect has been honored by the medical profession for more than six decades now as the gold standard by which one measures and assesses new treatments, uh, whether they be uh, medicines or, in some cases, uh, surgical procedures. These can be assessed uh, by comparing them with you know, a sham procedure or a sugar pill. Uh, people often have the wrong interpretation of, of uh, placebo effect. They think, oh, you're using a sugar pill to fool somebody. What they don't realize is, for example, if you go to noetics.org, uh, and, and put into their uh, search engine spontaneous regression, you'll find more than 3,500 cases of people believing they could do something to make them better, even people with advanced cancers, uh, progressive de uh, degenerative disorders, who through the power of belief alone are able to reverse whatever that situation is. I mean, placebo effect and spontaneous regression of diseases is the most obvious and powerful example of mind over matter that is alive and well in the scientific world. So don't think that the scientific world is completely bought into this uh, kind of materialist, physicalist viewpoint when we honor something like placebo effect to have so much say in how we um, you know, are handled in modern medicine and decisions are made. Because placebo effect shows you the power of a patient's belief. And in fact, when you really study modern placebo effect, and we discuss in our book, how placebo effect is getting stronger over time. As a paper in 2015 showed that in the last 15 years, placebo effect had strengthened, especially in North America. Um, and reasons for that are not well understood. But again, 
It's all a very powerful uh, demonstration of mind over matter and the reality of a mental universe. The most extraordinary cases of such healing occur in near-death experiences. That case review of my medical records that I mentioned a short while ago by three independent medical uh, reviewers who were not involved in my care also conclude uh, in a peer-reviewed medical article that it might be the spiritual journey that I had in coma that allowed me to have such an extraordinary and inexplicable miraculous recovery. And this happens in other near-death experiences, like Anita Morjani's Dying to Be Me, where her lymphoma, which was very advanced, should have killed her within 12 hours, evaporated. It went away because she had a profound near-death experience, and she knew, making a choice to come back to this world, that the lymphoma would disappear. Mary C. Neal, orthopedic surgeon involved in a kayaking accident in Chile uh, back in 1999, had a profound near-death experience. She, her kayak was jammed underwater, her legs broken, 10 feet underwater for more than 30 minutes. Wow. Now, you don't just come back from that, but she did. She's a practicing orthopedic surgeon. She travels the world today. I presented with her before on near-death experiences. So these experiences and cases of spontaneous regression of tumors, things like that, this is all showing us the power of mind over matter. And it has so much to do with belief. If you don't believe any of this works, it ain't it gonna work for work. you. What you think you become, words of Buddha, right? The power of positive exactly. thinking and the power of believing that we can overcome can literally change the universe. And I, I believe that so deeply. It absolutely so has a power. That, wow. I'm so clear. thankful that you that you say it like that. That's something that just uh, it's always resonated with me on a deep level. And, you know, hearing a yeah, scientist, a man that's a neuroscientist that believes in the power of thought to that level, like it kind of shows where science is headed. And, it you know, is. this heads to that direction where you start talking about ontologic framework and how if you could combine the filter theory with uh, the modern theories of quantum mechanics, and we, we would make the ontologic premise consciousness and what that could do right. for science, we would revolutionize history. And like, I want to break that down into simpler terms. So what is an ontologic framework and uh, what does that mean exactly? Well, ontology is all that it is. So in other words, when you're talking about ontology, you're talking about everything that exists everywhere, everywhere, completely, the whole big system. Uh, another word for that kind of idealism is metaphysical, which simply acknowledges that physics is the study of the physical world. But if that's not all there is, you know, you need to be looking at your metaphysics as what is underlying the physics. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, you know, quantum physics is a beautiful example of how science itself and rigorously applied science can help lead in a given direction. Because that's why the measurement paradox, you know, contextuality, the fact that the uh, choices made by an observing mind of the scientists have a very crucial impact on what happens in the experiment, far beyond what you can explain if you're simply trying to uh, call it all a material chain of events. So we really have to put mind as a much more kind of fundamental player in all of this. And, and that's where I think all this is important. And you're right, it will liberate science. Science has been uh, within shackles for 80 years, unable to figure out quantum physics at all. It's so counterintuitive. The results are so kind of striking. But only if you insist on physicalism as your as your uh, metaphysical assumption. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important, because quantum physics is showing us very clearly you cannot close the loop of causality within one physical universe. 
And also for any of your listeners who want to learn more about how we're thinking in books on this, but don't necessarily want to buy a book right now for free, you can get go to ebenalexander.com. That's E-B-E-N alexander.com. And right there on that welcome page, there's a little banner, your 33-day journey in, into the heart of consciousness. And take that little free 33-day email journey. More than 6,000 people have taken that course so far. They leave their comments on each of those pages. So it's a community that has a translate button. So we have people from all over the world who have been participating and helping each other. So I encourage all your listeners, uh, completely free, go to evanalexander.com, click on that banner, leave your first name and email address, and we'll send you a 33-day email drip course that will give you all the big concepts out of the book and help get you up to speed on how this is about science and spirituality merging. It's about the maturation of science finally coming to a richer understanding of quantum physics and what it's trying to tell us. I love that. So I wanted to share with you one of the most interesting things I've ever heard. Uh, It came from a friend of mine. So he talked about how Steve Jobs, he once said that taking LSD or acid uh, was one of the, quote, two or three most important things he ever did in his life. And then my friend, he went on to talk about how Watson and Crick, they co-discovered the DNA structure, the molecule, uh, while they were on LSD. And long story short, He shared this with me. He said one morning he woke up, he meditated on the thoughts of expanding his consciousness for about an hour and a half, and then he did LSD. And uh, he shared his experience with me, and the things he said were eerily similar to near-death experience in certain ways. And, you know, I reached out to him before this interview and I asked him about it. He mentioned that at the beginning he had to detach from a physical plane. He mentioned that that involved a life review of not just his life, but many lives. And then he mentioned that the, the universe would educate him about the nature of reality. He also mentioned a timeless space where time didn't exist and eventually reaching something that you refer to as the core where he experienced a full-blown oneness and power of pure love from the creative source of the universe. And he proclaimed that this experience helped him discover new aspects of his life mission. And when I heard this and I heard about your NDE, I really, I wanted to ask you whether there've been any direct comparisons in scientific literature attempting to relate uh, maybe psychedelics to NDEs. That's a very, very good question. People often uh, you know, propose to me that my entire experience was nothing more than a DMT dump. Dimethyltryptamine uh, is an endogenous psychedelic neurotransmitter that we make in our, in our brain in very minute amounts, although the, that's a little bit up to debate about uh, how much we have a natural access to that. But it, it points out the problem, first of all, in just using linguistic comparisons. People who have NDEs by the millions tell you it's beyond words. You can, it's ineffable. You cannot put the experience into words. They try to do that. And then the problem is other people will hear those words and they'll hear the words of people who've had a a psychedelic drug trip and they say, well, they certainly do sound the same. Now, what I would say is, uh, first of all, I'm very glad that we are now relaxing research into psychedelics. I think that they're going to be very powerful. Psilocybin has already been shown to be very useful at helping people with addictions, alcoholism, even nicotine and opioid addiction, which are very tough addictions to beat. Psilocybin may play a very good role in helping the people there. Psilocybin's also been useful in cancer patients with a severe fear of death. In fact, I would say psilocybin is probably more powerful than just about any drug ever used in psychiatry in alleviating such anxieties. A single dose is effective for more than six months. 
So it's really astonishing how powerful these things can be. But there are other reasons why, to me, psychedelic research is important. And first of all, I want to point out, I do not recommend casual use of psychedelic drugs for anyone. Uh, If you have any kind of mental or spiritual imbalance, they will kick you right over the edge. I don't recommend that at all. Uh, In fact, I believe that sound, uh, sacred acoustics uh, is what I use, differential frequency sound, can take you as far as psychedelics and even farther with a dedicated program. And this is a position that was supported in a book by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E. He wrote a beautiful book called Dark Night, Early Dawn, which I can highly recommend. He's a a very serious investigator who had a programmed use of, of LSD in a spiritual setting. And I think is one of the best writers, uh, one of the deepest thinkers on that whole question. And in his book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, he actually compares using LSD for spiritual advancement with the use of kind of loosely termed, generically termed uh, binaural beats. He was comparing it with Bob Monroe's work with what was called Hemisync, an early form of binaural beat. Uh, I look at sacred acoustics as just a, a more mature form of a very powerful type of binaural beat and differential frequency brain entrainment. CRISPR Bage concluded that you could go further with the sound than you could with the psychedelic drug. And I believe that's true, largely, I would say, because the drugs create too much of a splash. For one thing, they don't quite take you deep enough. There have been people who uh, compare, like, use the Grayson scale, uh, which Bruce Grayson scale for NDEs is a very powerful tool for assessing NDEs. And people have used similar scales to assess a psychedelic drug experiences. What you end up finding is that the psychedelic drug experience is more like a knock on the door that shows us, yes, these realms are real. The spiritual realms are absolutely real. There are realities out there that cannot be simply explained away as, oh, it's just some hallucination that we have no explanation for, especially when you look at all the commonalities of of those stories among thousands of people in all different cultures. And yet there are similarities that are really quite striking. So I think that is a kind of important point, how the experiences have some similarity, but I would say like the transcendental quality, becoming one with infinite love and reuniting with souls of departed loved ones and seeing the future of a personal soul journey, things like that. The really deep aspects of an NDE are not as commonly found in the psychedelic drug experiences. But I, I think that they are another way of opening the door. But again, my strong advice to anyone is give sound a try. I think it's, sound is much safer. Uh, it's far more powerful. And just to cut to the chase, important to point out the reason these sounds are so much more powerful than uh, sounds in general in terms of generating uh, deep transcendental states of conscious awareness are because a differential frequency brain entrainment through sacred acoustics and that kind of binaural beats is using a circuit in the lower brainstem that evolved more than 300 million years ago. The superior olivary nucleus complex. And by addressing a a circuit that is so ancient in the production of consciousness, uh, as opposed to most uh, anthems, chants, and hymns would be processed in the uh, temporal lobe and the acoustic cortex, which has just evolved over the last few million years. And I think this is one of the reasons why sacred acoustics and binaural beat brain entrainment, when well done and powerfully done, can take you a lot further than any other sounds and take you further than, say, psychedelic drug experiences in terms of depth. I must confess, though, and in my eight years of meditation almost daily with sacred acoustics and revisiting my NDE uh, many a time to develop much richer relationships with all of the elements of that NDE and with that infinite force of, uh, of healing love that I found there, 
Uh, I've never duplicated that full-blown ultra-reality through the sounds alone, as much as they've been effective at helping me to develop a much richer relationship with higher soul and with all the elements of that realm, including my birth sister, including my father. And I tell that story in Living in Mindful Universe, how I reunited with my father, who had passed over four years before my coma, but was not present in my NDE. Now, that was a real shocker to me because uh, over years of meditation, I've come to have much richer insight into all of that and connection with those realms. And that's what anyone can develop. In fact, that was one of the greatest gifts that my partner and co-author of Living in Mindful Universe, Karen Newell, brought to me uh, was a knowledge. She had never had a near-death experience, at least not one that she remembered, and yet she had a very profound spiritual wisdom that she had cultivated over decades of this kind of spiritual boot camp approach. And I found her to be a tremendous spiritual mentor, and she's helped me so much on every single front in terms of understanding. You know, the interesting thing about your near-death experience is the idea that your conscious awareness expanded after. Because I, I feel like a lot of people, they think about death and then they don't know what happens after. And you, you almost, you're wired to think your consciousness has got to decrease or something, right, right? When you die. But the concept of your consciousness expanding is something that, that's kind right. of mind-blowing, you know? It's the exact opposite of what you'd think. But that's what supports the reality of this model so strongly. Yeah. If the materialist model, if brain produces consciousness were true, you, you wouldn't have anything of these near-death experiences that happen in people who have been dead for days. So, I mean, some of them are really extraordinary. And this is why we must pay attention to this. It's not some little crazy hallucination of the dying brain, but we're completely wrong about the nature of the physical world and relationship between brain and mind. This is simply elaborating on the true power of human free will to determine the course of our lives. And we have responsibility for our choices. This is what is so important. So let's say someone's having a lot of trouble in life and you know they're, they're thinking about ending it. They're thinking about suicide. Uh, what's something that you can tell us about suicide and kind of the other side? Well, this is, again, something we discuss in great detail in Living in Mindful Universe is this suicide crisis. We mm -hmm. actually are having a, a growing epidemic of suicide combined with the, the crisis of the opioid epidemic. Those two factors alone are so strong that they're actually depressing the actuarial survival curves for people in our country. Now, the important thing to point out to your listeners is the notion of reincarnation. It's supported by all major religious systems. For those in Christianity, I'll simply point out that original Christian teachings were fully consistent with reincarnation. It was only centuries later when the Romans, like Constantine, were trying to restructure Christianity in the form of control that they made any talk of reincarnation as punishable by inverted crucifixion. So obviously they realized how powerful a concept reincarnation was. Now, the scientific evidence for reincarnation is very strong. If you look at the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson, Dr. Jim Tucker, both at the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, over the last six decades, they've studied more than 2,700 cases of past life memories in children where the best explanation of those reports and memories is of actual reincarnation. 35% of those cases, the children actually have a physical birthmark corresponding to the mortal injury of a previous lifetime. Wow. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. Right. Uh, in other words, there are much more powerful organizing principles here uh, that do not depend on things like DNA alone, like hereditary uh, 
et cetera, for giving us certain qualities in this existence that are more linked to kind of our soul than to any kind of materialist science simply means suicide is never the right answer because whatever you leave this world to avoid is going to be repackaged for you in that next lifetime. And in fact, uh, one of the things that our good friend and colleague Raymond Moody often uh, has told us in presentations is one of the strongest facts he can include about NDEs is that if someone attempts suicide and has any element of an NDE, that is encountering soul of departed loved one or that infinite healing power of that God force, at the core of the universe and come back to this world, they never attempt suicide again. Now that's very different from the typical scenario of attempted and failed suicides who then go back and try it again. So in other words, the NDE, the spiritual aspect of the journey is what makes the difference. And I can only assume that successful suicides also go through that same life review where they realize how much love was there for them in this life and yet somehow they missed it all. And they made the mistake of committing suicide, which brought even more pain and suffering to the loved ones around them who were trying to love them. So uh, if you can make amends for that in a life review, then maybe you can avoid being repackaged in, in the next experience. But don't try and leave problems in this life through suicide, because those, those problems will only still be there to haunt you. There is no way out but through. We are here to love ourselves and others by manifesting that love and coming to acknowledge the deep oneness we all share with each other, with all life throughout the universe, and with that creative force of the universe. This is the revolution and awakening in humanity that we're talking about. That makes sense. You know, every action, there's a complete and opposite reaction. You can't create or destroy energy. It only transforms. This kind of, it aligns with a lot of scientific principles that it just makes a lot of sense to me. So I want to ask you, like, there's a lot of evil and darkness and bad things that happen in the world. So what role can unconditional love play in that? Well, I, I would say that unconditional love basically has infinite power to heal in all of those circumstances infinite uh, unconditional love for self and for others. I don't think anyone would question that if, if we as human beings make a choice to bring more love, compassion, kindness, acceptance, mercy, and forgiveness into our dealings with ourselves and others, that sooner or later this world is going to become a much greater place. But I think the problem is people uh, have some doubts in their beliefs as to whether or not that is possible. But as we point out in Living in a Mindful Universe, we believe this is fully possible. In fact, we think it's, it's possible within very short order to change this world. We simply have to get this message out there and help people realize this is the healthiest uh, and kindest thing that they can do for themselves. And it also helps the entire world to bring more kindness, love, compassion, acknowledge the oneness of mind that we're all in this together. That life reviews basically show us that the golden rule, that is treat others as you would like to be treated is written into the very fabric of the universe. And that is the lesson this world is to learn today. That really aligned with a lot of things that I've been taught. My parents, they're from India and the word guru, it means teacher. And if you break down gu and ru, it actually means gu means darkness, ru means light. And if we th think of darkness and light, so darkness comes first, light comes after guru, but we're supposed to learn from both of them, right? And this concept, right. it's very similar to the yin and yang concept where we could take all the good and all the bad and look at it as an objective thing where we can learn from both of them equally. And it's not about getting emotionally attached to one or the other, right? And that's something that right. when we combine that with unconditional love, I feel like that's where we, we get to. We're able to learn from it in a way that 
we once thought wasn't possible. With that, I did want to get into the deepest scientific truth for you through your experience. What, what do you feel like was the deepest truth that you learned from your experience so far? I think the deepest truth is really the primacy of consciousness. Mm -hmm. That mind is fundamental in the universe, that, and, and also that we share one mind. You know, the notion of one mind is something we cover uh, a lot in Living in a Mindful Universe. I can also recommend a book by a very uh, good friend of ours. We presented with him several times, Dr. Larry Dossey. He wrote a beautiful oh. book called One Mind. And that book goes a long way to showing the reality of the fact that this is something that was basically surmised by people like Erwin Schrodinger, by quantum physicists who wrestled deeply. And Schrodinger said he thought that life might be an accident, but not mind and consciousness, that they are much more kind of fundamental, real, and one than uh, this kind of apparent multiplicity uh, of physical things in the universe. So I think that that's a very important concept to get out there. It's the primacy of mind, the connectedness of mind. That wow. We're all in this together, and it's not just about humans. We're connected with all sentient life throughout the universe. Uh, it's really just another way of saying that there is one mind, and each and every one of us participates as a co-creator with that one mind. Uh, and what meditation has helped me to realize that, uh, you know, any kind of perceived boundary there between myself and the creative force of the universe is only a problem of belief and of misunderstanding. Wow. So we did do a 24-hour poll yesterday. And in 24 hours, we asked our followers on Instagram, do you believe in heaven? And I thought it'd be interesting to share with you the stats. So uh -huh. uh, 735 people voted yes, 270 people voted no. And that, that means 73% of our followers said yes, and 27% said no, I do not. And hopefully after listening to this podcast, you know they're able to grow from that. We did have all of our followers submit questions for you. And believe it or not, we had over 50 questions submitted to you. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you 50 questions. <laughs> uh, our team narrowed them down. So Sabinja87, she asked, what religion leads to God? I would say that to the extent that any religion fosters oneness, love, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, acceptance, that that religion is uh, harmonizing and resonating with deep truth. To the extent that any religion tries to pretend that it's separate, that humans are separate, that we're in some kind of conflict, that we must get rid of the other team, what have you, uh, that that is a very dysfunctional, uh, outmoded and fatal kind of quality of a religion that will lead to its uh, very rapid demise as this world grows beyond the simplistic nonsense of scientific materialism and of buying into religious dogmas that were very fractious and leading away from what the modern neuroscience of consciousness is proving to be real about the oneness of mind and the uh, mental nature of the universe, uh, that that is really where we can have tremendous impact on this world. Do you believe we're all connected to that as human beings? I, oh, absolutely. I think that there is no soul that is uh, disconnected from any of this aspect. Amen. Now, we might believe we're not. We might believe that we're separate. We might you know, believe that uh, none of this is true, but that's all just part of the process of learning. Yeah. And that's why I believe that the naysayers, the doubters, bring a lot to the package, uh, as long as they're not pseudo-skeptics. The pseudo-skeptics are the ones who've made up their mind already, no matter what you tell you them. Say, yeah. uh, they don't care about facts. They certainly don't care about rational argument. So they're just on their own pathway. And, and sooner or later, they'll come around out of sheer frustration. Uh, but no, I think the whole world, the scientific world, is 
very far along this pathway. I can steer your uh, readers to GalileoCommission.org. Mm -hmm. uh, Karen and I, I'm an advisor to the Galileo Commission, more than 100 scientists who study uh, consciousness uh, and put out a basically a manifesto a month or so ago in London saying all this, that we're living in a spiritual universe, that modern science is proving the reality of our spiritual nature, we're spiritual beings in a spiritual universe, to try and pretend it's all material, working by material laws is completely false, um, and the world is growing up and moving forward. I couldn't agree more. So our next question comes from Kieran Mon. She asked, if you had one message to tell everyone after your experience, what would it be? Each and every soul is very important here. There is no one of you at all who is less than vitally important in this awakening, in this message, in this growth. This is about the evolution of all of consciousness, kind of along the, the lines of Taylor de Chardin, who wrote a phenomenon of man in the mid 20th century. And he viewed evolution as a very uh, kind of high level evolution of consciousness itself, knowledge, information, understanding towards an omega point of, of, of pure kind of Christ consciousness, as he called it, not to be confused with uh, anything about orthodox uh, Christianity, uh, but more about kind of oneness of mind. And, and yes, this is tremendously revolutionary. That's so beautiful. That reminds me of a, a quote that I heard once about all of us being a single drop in a giant ocean. And even with one less drop, the ocean would be quantifiably less, right? And, right. you know, every single soul being equally as important, like that's something that I can stand by. I truly believe that that's something true. Right. And I'm glad that, you know, you being a neurosurgeon, you're you're sharing some real truths in this world. And I have to acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. So uh, moving into the next question, Proud Muslima One asks, how can we avoid negative thoughts and be happy with ourselves? Well, I think what I recommend is, is meditation, a daily practice of going within, of developing that relationship with that higher soul. Now, when I say higher soul, realize that no one actually owns their higher soul alone. The higher soul is that convergence point with uh, all of other soul and spiritual energy and a primordial mind. But it allows higher soul, which is who we reunite with when we die. That's the kind of the, the guide through that uh, life review and through all the things that occur in near-death experiences. Uh, but we can develop that relationship in meditation. And that's what I strongly recommend. And I think that's the best way to avoid negativity. It turns out the first words I said when I came out of coma, even though I don't remember these words, they were reported to me by many people who were witness at the time, all is well, all is well. And in my meditation, I know that I can go in there knowing all is well. And all I'm doing is in the meditation is trying to achieve that perspective yeah. where I can see the win-win situation. I can see... Uh, all sides of any apparent uh, hardship, challenge, hurdle, illness, injury, what have you, and start seeing the way out that makes a choice out of love and forgiveness and compassion for self and others that, that truly allows for that spiritual growth and for the uh, evolution of consciousness that Taylor de Chardin talked about. And each and every one of us has the power to do that from going within. And the first step of that, of course, is taking that little voice in the head, the little ego that is so worried about anxieties and fears and what have you, and patting it on the back and giving it a little break and time out. Because it is not the boss, it is not yeah. who you are, and your higher soul can help you find your way to that much greater wisdom uh, and fount of just happiness through helping others, manifesting that love for self by loving others. I mean, it's a real liberating concept. 
conquer your mind and you'll conquer the world. That's that's something that, you know, through practicing meditation, I've been able to train my mind to think differently. Neuroplasticity, you know, I used to be a negative person, but now I've trained my mind to automatically go to positivity, right? And that takes training, years of training. But yeah, I would definitely recommend meditation as well. That's something that we can all benefit from, right? White Musk underscore 786 asks, you say you saw God. Can you describe what God looked like? Well, God is the infinite oneness of all possible dualities combined into one. So when you talk about masculine and feminine, you talk about good, bad, you talk about uh, dark, light, uh, you talk about all the kind of opposites, all the dualities. God is where they all converge into pure oneness in an ocean of love. The empirical knowledge of that God force is what near-death experiencers have been describing by the hundreds of millions going back for thousands of years across all cultures. But again, you don't have to have an NDE to know this. You can get the same infinite healing feeling of love and of, of love for the entire world and of love and of harmony uh, by meditation going within. That is something that Karen Newell showed me very beautifully and that I've seen in many of our workshops in people who have never had an NDE and yet they've come to the very same knowing of this powerful oneness and of sense of love through meditation alone. You know, there's a there's a prophet in the, the religion Sikhism. Uh, his name's Guru Nanak. And, you know, he was once asked, do you believe in God? And he said, I do not believe in God. I know God. And what he said was that God is everywhere and is everything. So God is in the plants. God is in the sky. God is inside of me. And God is inside of you. And what he said is God is inside of every human. And just because of that fact, he said, I cannot have enemies. Because if I were to hate another human, I would hate myself, right? And it really, it brings together the point that like, do unto others as you want done to you. And like to give, and that's how you receive. And this concept, it just kind of goes into this infinite where it's like, wherever you look and whatever you see, there's love in it because you were created from love. We are each godlike beings. And yes. of course, your ego cannot be godlike. The ego exactly. is a petty little nuisance thing that's uh, like a gnat. Uh, but <laughs> your higher soul can definitely lead you a pathway to knowing oneness with that God force of pure love. That's and that is what we are to bring to this world. That's what we can bring in to bring happiness uh, to ourselves and bring happiness to this world is that knowing of that oneness with the God force that we can come to know fully through deep, profound meditation and identification with that primordial mind. It's amazing what that could do to the physiology of the human body. It's interesting that that points towards better health, right? To me, that's just so fascinating to think about. Dr. Ibn Alexander, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate you. And before you leave, we do ask one last question to every single person who's been on this podcast, and that's, what is your definition of medspiration? I would say medspiration is inspiration through uh, medical knowledge of the reality of our human condition. It's a a perfect word to explain where all this is headed. This is all about life and understanding and the uh, kind of energy of the higher soul to manifest uh, the free will of our loftiest dreams. And that's what Medspiration is all about. Thank you so much. And uh, where can our audience learn more about you? So I know you mentioned your website. And what are some cool things you're currently doing, just so our audience can follow up with you? The best thing, uh, you can follow, uh, sign up for the newsletter at evanalexander.com. And I don't bomb people with too much stuff there. But about once a month, I try and send out some very interesting kind of connections, observations. People can learn a lot more on the website, uh, evanalexander.com, 
on the blog page. You can uh, get a tremendous amount of information there. There also are lots of interviews, presentations, uh, links to them. So there's a whole host of things there. And of course, sacredacoustics.com. I can highly recommend that for anyone who wants to get involved beginning today. You don't have to lay out a single penny. You can get the free 20-minute ARM download, listen through some headphones or earbuds. Go to sacredacoustics.com to her Karen's uh, visual. She has several uh, videos there, very short training videos, all for free, that help give some very profound clues about how to get maximum advantage out of this stuff and just enjoy the adventure. It's amazing. Thank you again, Dr. Ivan Alexander, for being on with us and giving us your time. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I thought it was powerful. If you guys loved it, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, a public charity. The more you help our podcast grow, the more people we're able to help. It is our mission to serve in underserved and underprivileged areas all over the world. So be sure to click subscribe and rate us five stars. The bigger we get, the more people we're able to help, guys. So... Thank you so much for all the support out there. And again, a big thank you to our sponsor, Caribbean Medical University. Caribbean Medical University has partnered with Medspiration to bring you a once-in-a-lifetime discount. You can visit cmumed.org forward slash medspiration and enter the discount code MDSPR to have your entire application fee waived. That's a $75 value. Apply today and see if medicine is in your future. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.